1984, Wes Craven was coming off of the massive success of A Nightmare on Elm Street, a film which, for better or worse, would reinvigorate and change the horror genre for years to come, with the new emphasis being on colorful villains, ultra-gruesome violence, and volume, with sequel after sequel being released each and every year. Yet Craven, who was initially offered a job directing the controversial sequel, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, opted to depart the low-budget New Line Cinema for the greener pastures of Warner Brothers where he hoped he'd be able to branch out from the horror genre by signing on to direct a science fiction thriller called Friend, which was described as being in the vein of John Carpenter's Starman from the year before. The eventual result was a film that was nothing at all like the gentle tale Craven had been hoping to make, and in many ways, the most controversial entry into his filmography. So join us as we take a look at what the fuck happened to Deadly Friend. In the early 80s, Wes Craven, despite already being a horror icon for The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, found himself attached to a number of very troubled productions. Craven had tried to branch out from horror with his gonzo sci-fi superhero tale Swamp Thing, one of the first movies ever to be based on a DC Comics character, but problems with the company holding the completion bond on the film meant that much of his planned third act was jettisoned, and Craven, thoroughly burnt out by the project, didn't work again for two years saying later that he felt like he'd had his big shot and blown it. This was the nadir of his career, with him opting to shoot a sequel to The Hills Have Eyes because, well, he needed the money. The shoot was a disaster, with the film being forced to shut down two-thirds of the way into production, and the resulting film, if you can call it that, which Craven was somehow enticed to finish, was granted a quick, much-mocked release in theaters, going down his history as perhaps the only movie in which a dog has flashbacks from the first film in order to allow them to pad the running time. In fact, the only reason The Hills Have Eyes 2 ever came out at all was due to a little movie called A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, Wes Craven was at the end of his rope when he hatched the idea for Freddy Krueger, eventually winding up at New Line Cinema, where he was able to piece together enough financing to make it on a threadbare budget. The result, of course, made history, and soon a sequel was planned. However, Craven was less than pleased by the rush job script and opted to walk away, but no matter. Suddenly, he was a hot property. At the same time Craven made A Nightmare on Elm Street, another horror master, John Carpenter, branched out in a big way with the sci-fi romance Starman, which earned him some of the best reviews of his career and a Best Actor nomination for star Jeff Bridges. Clearly, this was Craven's moment, so it was off to Warner Brothers, one of the most legendary studios in town, to make a film of the novel Friend by Diana Henstel. This movie, hopefully, would be his Starman. While still somewhat in the horror genre, the finished screenplay was written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who previously written the seemingly cursed Brainstorm, also the spec script Jacob's Ladder, which would be made into a movie in the 90s by Adrian Lyne, and would go on to pen the mega-hit Ghost. Now, the film wasn't intended to be a teen slasher. Rather, the idea was to make it a dark romance. Now, Deadly Friend received an excellent post-mortem report several years ago by writer Joseph Madry, writing for Daily Dead, who was able to talk to many of the principals involved, including Ruben, who provided him with several versions of the screenplay, as well as the source novel, which is centered around a 13-year-old boy who's built a robot named Piggy to help him deal with the stress of his parents' divorce, and falls in love with his 11-year-old neighbor, Samantha, who's tragically killed by her drunken father. To save her, he transplants his robot's brain into his newly dead neighbor, reviving her, but all is not well, and the novel ends tragically with both protagonists dying. 
Craven and Ruben did what was only logical at the time. They made the protagonists teens, and not only teens, sexy teens. This was also the era of, you know, Rocky IV and Space Camp. Every movie had a robot, so the robot in this film suddenly became a lot more central to the plot. But still, no one wanted to make it a horror movie. At first, Craven himself explained his attraction to the project by saying, the scares don't come from her, meaning Samantha, but from the ordinary people who are actually much more frightening. A father who beats his child is a terrifying figure. That's the one person you're afraid of in this movie. The idea is along the lines that adults can be horrible without being outside what society says is acceptable. To play the lead, Craven cast Matthew Liberto, who was already somewhat famous at the time for having played Albert Ingalls on the long-running Little House on the Prairie. Now, younger viewers may just think to themselves, okay, he was a child star, so what? But they likely don't understand just how omnipresent Little House on the Prairie was to those of us growing up in the 80s. It was everywhere, and Liberto was very recognizable in the part. He said on record that Craven had assured him earlier on that for his big first studio film, he had no interest in making a horror movie, but instead it would be a nice little love story. By contrast, Christy Swanson was a fresh face. When Deadly Friend came out, she would have been most recognizable for playing the teen daughter on the popular Disney TV movie Mr. Boogity, while on the big screen she's the dream girl who the rejected ducky consoles himself with at the end of Pretty in Pink. After this, she would go on to be the girl who offers Kirk Cameron cocaine in Growing Pains, a very special episode. Trivia, she was dating his father on the show, Alan Thicke at the time. Deadly Friend would be her first starring role. Swanson, of course, would go on to become famous for playing the big screen version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and she had high praise for Craven. Now, if the movie is supposed to be in the vein of Starman, why would there be a scene where the old lady from the Goonies and Throw Mama from the Train gets her head splattered open by a basketball? Here's where things get interesting. With one week left to shoot, Wes Craven suddenly started to doubt himself. It had not been an easy time in his personal life. I'll tell you what happened in the year of making Deadly Friend. I uh, discovered, uh, to put it uh, discreetly, that my marriage was no longer anything but a sham. Uh, I was supposed to be directing next Beetlejuice, and uh, about two months into preparation for that, I was yanked from it. Um, I was supposed to direct um, Superman 4. I was had an interview with Christopher Reeves, and he said, Wes Craven will never direct my film. <laughs> um, I was being sued for about $30 million by somebody who thought that I had copied uh, a script that was so different from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street that you can't believe, but I was being sued, and I, I was not at that time covered by the errors and omission policy, and New Line was letting me throat and dangle in the wind. Uh, all of that was going on at the time. At the same time, A Nightmare on Elm Street had proven to be a smashing success, and the studio urged Craven to add a little gore to the film to liven things up. He obliged, adding a gory dream sequence, which would prove to ultimately be the film's undoing. As Craven explained, in the last weeks of shooting, I made one little nightmare scene and put it into the film. It was the big hit of the screening. So then they came to me and said, listen, what we need is more of that stuff. What we're doing is adding to the deaths of a few of the people. A jump from the beginning, a new closing scene, and two nightmares. The sort of Wes Craven touch. And indeed, the film was tested for an audience of teens who soundly rejected the tame film Craven had made, and this is when studio head Mark Kenton demanded Craven and the writer come up with six gruesome death scenes to add to the film, necessitating a major overhaul that, in effect, changed the film's genre, turning it into a much more routine slasher. 
Craven was strong-armed by the studio, and the gore scenes included the now-infamous basketball murder. The title of the film, Friend, was no longer appropriate, thus a change at first to artificial intelligence, then to AI, and this, of course, all made it sound like a robot movie, which it only kind of half is, although the robot, BB, apparently cost a hefty $20,000 to construct. Much of the more whimsical character-based plot was excised, with the added gore scenes to the film being too scattershot. At times, it played like it was a PG-13 love story, while at others, it was a hardcore R-rated horror flick. Obviously, the studio decided to go all-in on the horror aspect. The film was especially controversial thanks to the tacked-on horror ending, where Samantha's corpse turns into a robot and kills Paul, the lead. Bruce Joel Rubin explained that this was solely the work of Ken, explaining, of course, that you don't tell the president of Warner Brothers that his idea stinks. The film's fate in many ways would parallel another movie being made at Warner Brothers at the same time, Cobra, starring Sylvester Stallone, where the initial moody graphic action film was, at the 11th hour, shorn of over 25% of its running time after running afoul of the MPAA. Deadly Friend would get an R rating, but the graphic scenes that the studio insisted on led to a logjam with the film's release, with it being resubmitted to the ratings board 13 times. The final edit was mostly the work of a studio fix-it man named Michael Elliott, who would later go on to do similar overhauls on R-rated action flicks like Showdown a Little Tokyo and Out for Justice. In the end, it was all for nothing, as the film wound up being a disaster, grossing only $8.9 million at the box office, although like many films of the era, on VHS, it went on to become something of a cult hit. Craven himself didn't mince words on the film's ultimate fate. I was also my first big studio film, and there was about 20 producers on it, and they all had different opinions, so it was like... I'm amazed that anything came out of that film <laughs> is watchable whatsoever. Indeed, the failure stung enough that Craven returned to the fold at New Line 4, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, hatching the premise of the sequel and writing a script that eventually would be heavily rewritten due to it being just too ambitious for the scope and expensive. Craven would suffer through more flops in the 80s, with The Serpent and the Rainbow, Shocker and The People Under the Stairs, all of which would later go on to become appreciated as the good films they are and achieve cult status all flopping pretty much at the box office. He would eventually find his way back to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise with Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which was a dazzling satire of Hollywood horror that put the franchise through a postmodern spin and would in many ways play out like training ground for what was to become the rapidly popular Scream franchise. Eventually his dream of directing a non-genre film would be achieved when he did the Meryl Streep vehicle Music of My Heart. Although he wouldn't be able to stay away from the genre for long, despite that film doing pretty well at the box office, with his cursed going poorly enough it got its own what the fuck happened episode a little while ago, although he would have much more success with the awesome thriller Red Eye and then Scream 4 before tragically passing away in 2015, being remembered by most horror fans who met him as one of the really nice guys in the business. The writer, Bruce Joel Rubin, would go on to a widely successful Hollywood career, becoming famous for writing The Tearjerkers, Ghost, and My Life, starring Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman, a film that's so sad it could make a stone cry, and The Time Traveler's Wife. He'd mostly stay away from genre, with the notable exception of Jacob's Ladder, the very same spec script that initially got him noticed for work on Brainstorm and Deadly Friend. That film, which was directed by Adrian Lyne, would suffer a similar fate to Deadly Friend, being mired in post-production hell. Despite the finished project suffering mightily from studio meddling, Rubin has always said that he has mostly fond memories of working on Deadly Friend, with him mentioning that Swanson was very kind to his young child who had a big crush on her, while he'd also say Craven was exceedingly kind to work with, 
even going so far as to say that his time working with Craven was the happiest of his career, even if the finished project amounted to very little. The film itself would eventually become something of a cult item, being discovered on VHS, cable, and DVD, and there's even been talk of remaking it. However, what Wes Craven's fans really want is a reconstruction of the original version that was test screened before the various reshoots, although it's unknown whether any of that footage actually survives in the Water Brothers vault. Restoring movies from the era is very hit and miss, and if Craven himself didn't hold on to the first cut, it's unlikely that it survives, leaving Deadly Friend only available in its much maligned and compromised form. Ah!